0: Hello, and welcome to Office Hours. Uh, We're a show dedicated to answering your questions about media and virtual production. We have a fantastic panel today to do so. If you'd like to ask us a question, go over to officehours.global, hit join us, and join our Mukana uh, question and answer phrase. Uh, We have typically our first hour, we'll do a question and answer session to answer those questions. Uh, We're going to have a, something special for you today Those uh, Saturdays are Education Saturdays. We have Dave Trotman for us today talking about um, immersive media, the different forms that are available today on the on the venue of education. So looking forward to that. Uh, don't go away. Uh, stick around for our second hour for education. All right.
1: Uh, what do we have? Thank you, uh, Josh. Appreciate it. Andy Kaufman, uh, Kokendorfer from Vieira, <laughs> Florida. I do want Andy Kaufman. Uh, has a question in Zoom webinar? Can you promote someone from the audience to be a speaker? Guy.
2: Yeah, it's pretty easy to do. The easiest way, though, is to have somebody raise their digital hand, and that way they pop to the top of the attendee list, especially if there are um, a lot of people in in the uh, the webinar. And once uh, they're there in the participants uh, panel, you can click on their name and say promote to panelist, and then on their end they'll get a little uh, notification to accept. And then they'll go ahead and be a um, webinar panelist. And from there, you can uh, make them co-host or whatever else you want to do.
0: Once upon a time, you could promote someone to an office hours panelist in webinar. Just have a little minute to think about that. All right, let's go to our next question.
1: Richard Lavery and Belfast, we are aiming to scan our theater interior to recreate it in Unreal. Any advice on what devices, apps, tools to use? Rick? Uh, yes, I would suggest a, a LiDAR scanner. Um,
3: I think it's a very accurate, and, um, yeah, that would be my suggestion. Pharo or um, uh, some other great manufacturers out there.
0: Thanks, Rick. And Mark? So there's, there are a
4: lot of great manufacturers out there, uh, Trimble being one of them, and then another one is Matterport. And uh, both of these are used by professional surveyors to go through and survey interior and exteriors of buildings. Um, I would say there's also some that work for the iPhone. My, I think what you'll find with the iPhone is that you can only go out about 10, 12 feet before things start to lose their resolution and the LiDAR starts to fall apart. So my suggestion, if this is a one-off, is hire a professional company because it takes a lot of compute power to get that point cloud into something like Revit for three-dimensional modeling and such. So I think uh, it, it can be a very expensive hobby and it's hard to make it work in business. So go to a professional company and, and get them to help you out.
0: So that's interesting, Mark, we went from LIDAR scanner to professional company. And nowadays people have the some LIDAR capability on their phones. What would we consider to be something that the phone could handle—is it more of just a toy in some so, circumstances? Well, I, I don't think it's
4: necessarily a toy. It does does do the whole process of taking it into a model that can be uh, scaled and dimensioned and looked at for for building other models. I think the problem with it is is just the lenses aren't able to reach certain distances so in a theater where you have high ceilings it's going to be difficult to get a good model that's accurate from a phone you really need a higher level like a Trimble or a matterport that'll be able to take all that information and use that and be able to reach a further distance um but i think in due time if it hasn't happened already some of this will be coming to drones and you'll see services using drones inside of buildings to reach those higher levels
0: and I wonder if the uh, newly released reality scan would be useful for this, or is that only for small objects, perhaps? I haven't looked have into it. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to throw that right at you, Mark. But uh, yeah, we have a. See, we just have a fantastic panel today, so I thought maybe we we might be able to cover that. But let's go to our Thanks. next question.
1: Next one in from Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida. What are your thoughts on this computer AI animation from Audio Feature? Uh, And there's a link to Adobe
5: in there. John. First thought was it was pretty fun to play with. Uh, Me and my kids are going to be spending some time on it today. It's nice that the little characters use the Fenwick framer to make sure they, they fit nicely in the center. The problem is you can't have the characters do anything they can just sit there and talk and then they'll randomly or based on your speech move their arms or legs just a little bit and not in a meaningful way i think what it points to is in the future especially in like corporate training or documentation as we can use more speech to text to animation it will really help like the corporate training world. And I see a lot of products starting out where you give it a script and it will have an avatar, read it in a human-like voice. And that's really nice from a training perspective because then if you make a change, you just change the script and everything else downstream gets fixed from there. And one of the hardest things in training is if you're making a video and you're trying to do something that changes frequently, it can be a very costly system to maintain.
3: Rick? Um, This seems to be a is shoot off of character animator from adobe which is a a larger program that allows you to animate characters uh, through uh, some like a camera where you can track parts of your body and your mouth uh, but the audio animation to me is it's pretty crude it's kind of more like the mouth just opens and closes you're stuck with some preset animations that are baked into those characters in character creator so um it's it's not super accurate it's more just kind of fun i feel um and just kind of a rough animation but it's fun if you want to go a little more in depth check out character animator from adobe and it's part of the cloud suite as well thanks mark and mitchell
1: i first saw something that would do this uh in after effects believe it or not as a uh, feature in there and then uh, as rick just mentioned character animator and this site um I did notice that the mouth moved a little bit more than just open and closing and doing that kind of stuff. Uh, And as a child of uh, Saturday morning TV cartoons, uh, remembering Clutch Cargo, um, I think some of the older people here will smirk a little bit when I say that. Um, It's not a still shot with uh, the mouth cut out so you can see the mouth talking, but that's the way they used to do it.
6: Courtney. This is a throwback. I, I remember Microsoft had uh, a program that would do something like this. Uh, can't remember. It was Movie Maker. And like Movie Maker or, or something like that, it, it came on a CD at least 10 or 15 years ago that did this. So I don't think there's any AI involved. It's just strictly voice to moving three frames of animation of the mouth around and some stock moves on the. On the people. But yeah, they used to have this. Microsoft had one where you could do little scenes, you had backgrounds, you had characters, and you could animate them. And they would animate to a, a can's any uh, pre recorded soundtrack or, or open microphone.
0: Thank you. What's old is new again. Let's go to our next question.
1: Mike Beardmore from Reading, UK, with predictions of chip shortages lasting until 2025. What are their opportunities for remanufacturing, refurbing older equipment to production use standards?
7: Nigel. So um, what is old is new again, I think Josh said, and I think that's probably a theme for lots of people, which is uh, while the supply is starting to get better, what a lot of uh, manufacturers have done is completely re-engineered their products. I know a number that spent tens of millions of dollars redesigning products. What you'll discover is some of your favorite products will disappear. Because they can get the parts, but they've already re-engineered and retooled into something else, and so they've jumped forward on the supply itself. I can tell you that it is, from what we say at least, it is starting to get better. Uh, so, what was uh, components that were taking nine months to turn up, they're now taking six months to turn up, and at some point they'll they'll become you know back to normal lead time. The interesting question will be. Will there then be a glut of things? So, you know, as as this works through the snake, will we end up with an oversupply situation where people have more parts they want that could cause some price crashes? Um, There are lots of other implications, particularly people who have uh, put cash out uh, to buy parts that if the prices drop, won't be able to recover some of the amounts. So there may be all sorts, by the middle of the uh, next year, there may be all sorts of opportunities, uh, sales and uh, price drops that happen as a result of the sudden resupply. I believe that's called the
0: whip or the whiplash effect. Too much, too little, too much, too little, lots of lead time. Go, Courtney.
6: Yeah, and, and if you're doing bleeding edge uh, technology where you require, you know, really, you know, five nanometer process chips, TSMC is about the only place that manufactures those at the moment. They're building a new fab somewhere in the United States, maybe, but they've scaled back on those plans. So I don't know if that's going to happen in, in Arizona. Are they in your, in your backyard, John? Uh, but Arizona,
8: four, four
3: nanometer.
6: Yeah, but that'll be, what, three years before that uh, factory is up and going, probably. So, um, yeah, if you're going to need bleeding edge stuff, there's still going to be a bit of a shortage. And depending upon the political situation in Taiwan with China, you know, who knows, that could come to a halt or uh, another COVID breakout can cause a lockdown. And that can cause havoc, too, in the supply t- supply chain.
9: Dave? Well, I guess I come at it from the refurb side. Um You know, taking apart or cannibalizing older systems and then using parts to repair some other systems was a pretty big practice a long time ago, but now with the kind of factories that manufacture things with robots and very precise placement of parts, it's really difficult to take apart many of these things and refurbish them. Nigel dealt with the supply line thing, so I won't mention that. But the other thing about you know remanufacturing is some of the machines that do the manufacturing are quite limited in supply. And so you wouldn't really have one hanging around that could put together the device you're trying to refurbish. So that was one of the directions I thought was restricting that kind of thing. The practice has somewhat gone out of favor to refurbish things because, like cars, they just replace parts. They don't actually fix anything got better
8: uh, just uh, going up going off of what Dave just said I mean remanufacturing something that's built using surface mount technology is almost impossible I mean it, it's a microscope and a human if you can find it and and keep in mind that a lot of the chip shortages aren't around the specialty chips the the five nanometer chips I mean we have people that can make those what really has hurt the I mean the auto industry and a few other major industries was the old style chips that are you know measured in 30 nanometer kind of kind of designs that they just can't get a hold of anymore
0: Mitchell
1: yeah case in point um, this is one of the applications where it's a problem is I have a benchmark uh, digital audio uh, digital analog converter and uh, the fan went out and it burned up all the uh, the major chips inside when I wanted to get it fixed by the uh, uh, the manufacturer benchmark, they said, we're really sorry, but those chips are just simply not available. So there is no refurbing uh, going on in that particular line. Uh, they might have moved on to a completely different chip in, in place of that. And I think that's sort of what's making decisions in design now is that they're now, when they're designing something, looking to see if the chips are available and which ones they want to base their system on, particularly on DAX and uh, other types of audio related di- to digital uh, devices. So um, I would never have a problem buying a refurb product. In fact, I encourage uh, anyone that's looking at something new to see if the refurb version is available because it's going to be one that's confirmed to be really good in working order. So uh, also be aware of what kind of chips are in it in case you have a problem like I did. Let's go to our next question. Perry, uh, Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Can Guy from the DVA store show us how he does such an awesome green screen? How long did it take to perfect Guy,
0: I don't think you have a presentation, but uh what do you got?
2: Yeah, first, you know you want to get some composite components green screen and uh you want to light it evenly, you want to use uh you know your waveforms and get it to fifty i r e uh but then you want to troll your friend um you know Paul and put him on the screen and tell him that that's not really a green screen that that's really my background and you know, that I could just turn off the t v because that's real life.
0: It's not a green screen at all. So there you go, Paul.
1: Fantastic. I, I
0: underestimated you, Guy.
1: Let's go to our next question. We've been punked. Okay, next question from Douglas Carmichael. In the early 2000s, there was a company called the Cart Guys that refurbed cart machines and service for the radio industry. One comment was that broadcasters in developing countries never will go to computers. Would that still be true today? No, (laughs) uh,
6: computers are ubiquitous because they're in everything. And even if they're not a a PC that may be banned, uh, you know, that is a computing device, you can get MP3 players that have little little PCs in them or, you know, system on a chip uh, that are running. And you can use, you know, a, a $20, a $10 MP3 player can be used as a cart machine to play higher fidelity and longer car- longer pieces than those old cart machines could play and uh, with the right software interface for them they, you can have a thousand different uh, cuts on that uh, little MP3 player so no, it doesn't make any sense to go back to the old days of you know putting those little foil cue tapes on the endless loop cartridges
0: i'm reminded of a uh, commercial tagline what is a computer Mitchell?
1: Yeah, we didn't use foil tape. We just used sectones uh, on our machines. But uh, Courtney is absolutely correct. Uh, it's too old. Uh, too much manufacturing and design had to go into making cart machines. It had too many moving parts, too many precision machined pieces to it. And I'm sure, as he said, that uh, you can buy a computer that can play audio back a whole lot cheaper than if you bought it. Back in, I remember, in the 70s, when we bought a cart machine, it was like three to $5,000 in 1970s money. So that'll give you an idea how expensive they were.
0: Well, you know, the original term computers meant a person. Just saying.
7: Nigel? I just want to speak up for the cart machine. I think there's something physical about putting a cart in or a deck of cards, hitting a button, having the the jingle or the ad play. There was something beautiful and physical. And we've become so electronic we lack the tactile feeling that that gives us so i I I feel we've just been unfair to the cart and I wanted to speak up briefly for it
0: I wonder Nigel if there might be a resurgence of you know we had fidget spinners for a while for people missing the mechanical things in life that a-
7: look we're all buying stream decks we're buying <laughs> you know things with physical buttons i think we should start a kickstarter to bring the virtual cart machine back because <laughs> i just that that pressing that button just at the right time or pulling the fader uh, you know being the bbc where i worked the fader went down rather than up at just at the right moment was such a beautiful feeling man i'd be nostalgic if
0: i knew what a cart machine was Go ahead, mark So I think uh,
4: Mitchell just showed an actual cart that was played that usually recorded commercials and things on. But the problem is with the technology today, your automation machine and your traffic system are all interlined together so that the billing and the reporting goes out the same. And you can do your as plays and all the reports that are required by the FCC. So at least in this country, it would be a little hard to go back to just the cart machine, I think.
6: Courtney? Courtney? Yeah, and another thing to consider is nobody makes quarter-inch tape anymore. <laughs> That's the big problem. you got to put some quarter-inch tape in those card machines, and Scotch doesn't make it anymore. 3M doesn't make it anymore. I think BASF, I think, was one of the last manufacturers. And I don't know if they're still doing it. There, there are a, a couple of custom boutique houses that I think may still be doing coating some tape, but magnetic tape, but
1: it's getting really hard to find. Mitchell? Yeah, there's a lot of things down the supply line that's an issue because in a cart, this is the actual cart we're talking about. Uh, In this case, it was for my morning show on the radio. Um, You've got the tape that's in it, which is a specially lubricated tape because that tape is an endless loop that's constantly turning and running across uh, the tape heads. And a capstan in a cart machine pops up and uh, does the thing here. So to Nigel's point, um, I'd love the venerable cart machine to come back but there's nobody out there building these anymore. This one was built, I can see the actual date, when it was manufactured, April 23rd, 1993. And I think Fidelopac was the last company that was making these devices. So you may have the machine, but you need these guys, and you need lots of them in order to be able to uh, run it in a radio station.
7: Angel? Can I just say the lack of imagination going on here? The, the the next generation of cart machine does not necessarily have to have tape in it. You know, we could put little MP3 players. We could do lots of things. It's the physical cart. It's not the content of it that I'm looking for. I'm just saying.
0: Nice. Well, I think we've had some good time to reflect on that. And if you'd like to uh, get the panel's uh, viewpoint, we do have a little more room for questions. Feel
1: free. Let's go to our next question. Next question in from Serge Blondin in Montreal, Canada. Is the Blackmagic UltraStudio 4K compatible capture device for Zoom looking for a perfect uncompressed device? Guy.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm going to say hold off for a, a moment on this one. So I went ahead and bought a um, 1 to 8 HDMI, um, not a matrix. I, I bought the one that will just... Uh, it's like 40 bucks that'll just kick out. Um, you put in one signal and it'll put out eight. So then I went and got a bunch of capture cards so uh, we could compare. So we I have the cheapest like 19 dollars one that uh, is you know HDMI, but it's um, it's MJPEG. And then we have some of the other ones from Roland that are supposedly uncompressed. And then I do have the Blackmagic Extreme uh, Ultra Studio Extreme 4K as well. So don't buy anything yet. I'll I'll bring it in here and let you guys see the difference if we can see uh if we could see anything but i would say just off the top of my head that i would go for you know better camera better lighting those things are going to make a dramatic difference uh, uncompressed is going to make a, a difference if you're actually recording to an uncompressed media so i have mine set up to where i can record to a raid and i can record pro hq and there's a reason to do that so i can color correct and post but if you're just using it for zoom you're not going to see a substantial enough difference, I don't think, but we'll, I'll, I'll hook it up into my ATEM and we'll side-by-side we'll side compare them and then you'll know for sure.
0: I'm assuming that's post-Zoom, but maybe he means pre-Zoom? Uh, yeah, I don't know.
1: Let's go to our next question. And it's from you, Josh, uh, from Pittsburgh, PA. Here are in our panel, VLANs or separate networks for the Internet of Things devices. How best to remove distractions from a production network? So if
0: we run a production and we have our home network that also has some IoT devices. My question for the panel is should we run VLANs, separate networks, benefits, retractions of each, how to cut that network chatter for a production system. Uh Dave.
9: I don't have any IoT in my house, but I just presumed that they mostly operate on Wi-Fi that you wouldn't Ethernet your fridge. So I think separate wise, it would be the Wi-Fi versus direct line combination that would separate them.
6: Courtney? Yeah, you could put them on a a different subnet, but uh, what I do is I just, all my IOT stuff is, and almost all the IOT stuff is 2.4 gigahertz only. Uh, so I just put all the IoT stuff on the two. I have a dual band router, but all the IoT stuff on the 2.4, and all the the media and data stuff is on five gigahertz. Uh, that goes around, and if you want to, you could set them up as a separate SSID for for each uh, each frequency, each band. And uh, you got to be careful about some of these new. New routers have a single SSID, and then it just picks whichever band it gets the reception best on, but you have to turn that off so it won't be uh, sending stuff over the 2.4 because it gets through walls a little bit better.
8: Peter. I was about to say, what I do at my house, Josh, is, first of all, all my production stuff is wired. All the IoT stuff, of course, is wireless, and it's on a unique SSID to keep it away from my traffic and it's on a different subnet. So I don't have to actually see it when I scan my network, unless I deliberately
0: scan that subnet. And Peter, may I ask, do you have a convenient way of shutting that subnet down? Yeah, it's called my phone. Like it's called from the app, from the app. Nice.
7: Nigel. So I think the answer is, VLANs plus QoS. So I think it's a bit more complicated depending how many devices you have in your house or how many IoT things. And and in a, in a modern large house, you can have hundreds if not thousands of IoT devices with every shade, every light having its own IP address. I think you end up doing two different things. You You first of all end up trying to get as much wired as you can and leave the wireless to your your, your iPad and your, your devices like that. You try and build VLANs, and then you in, do something called QoS, quality of service. So you can, within a VLAN, give different priorities to different types of traffic. And so if, if it gets big enough, that's where you need to go. And a managed router should allow a mixture of VLANs and QoS. And I actually think, Josh... This is a subject that we it really is a, a, a second hour, because I have about a thousand VLAN questions. I've just told you everything I sort of know on the subject. I think this is something we could really double click on.
0: I agree. Uh, there's a lot of uh, internet uh, networking and IT questions uh, that we uh, that we could use for a second hour. We'll have to hit up our, our IT council on that. Um, Mickey from the chat mentions that you can create firewall rules and allow traversal of specific traffic between VLANs for things such as control. That seems to be getting a popular answer. Thanks, Mickey, in the chat. Let's go to
1: our next question. From Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asks, Chris Fenwick says he watches over 100 YouTube videos a day. Does anyone else on the panel or of the producers note in the chat come even close to this or exceed this?
6: Courtney? I haven't counted, but probably because that's my next go to, you know, I find that I'm, a, I am watching and I have Netflix and, you know, Amazon and Disney and, you know, all these streaming services that have all this original content out there. But I, uh, plus I'm on, you know, mailing lists for, you know, screeners. Uh, but I end up watching a lot of YouTube and instructional, you know, short instructional stuff, uh, history stuff, uh, Uh, yeah, I get, I have the ability to, I like to watch the monologues, the late night comedians, but I don't stay up that late and they post them right after they do them live at about, uh, between five and seven o'clock on the, between five and eight o'clock on the, uh, West coast. So I can watch the opening monologue for all the late night show, you know, uh, variety shows, uh, before I go to bed, you know, they don't even air till 1130 here. So I, I get to see all of those and watch them on YouTube and they post them on YouTube. So. I do watch a lot of them. And since I have my little YouTube viewer that doesn't play commercials, I'm not, you know, timed out with a pre-roll and a post-roll and a mid-roll.
0: I know that um, Paul mentions hundred discrete videos, but I mean, with YouTube shorts nowadays, uh, you probably a more impressive technique would be total watch time. And I have to say that, what would be an interesting statistic for me would be how much of my life I've been able to buy back for my YouTube premium descriptions to keep those uh, commercials from rolling. Nigel?
7: Yeah, I, I was just going to say what you were going to say, I think, which is, um, I don't know, I watch a hundred uh, different videos, but it's probably the channel that I watch most, like Courtney versus um, typical streaming television. I think you have to bite the bullet and find a way to watch it without the adverts. I'm not sure I quite understood what uh, was said before, but uh, I paid the subscription. Um, And I found that and managing my subscriptions on, and my channels on YouTube really makes that experience much easier. And and I would tell you that this YouTube short thing is a great way to kill an hour at an airport while you're waiting and you don't want to do anything else. Although I am very concerned about how it decides what I should see, because I am getting a lot of pimple popping stuff at the moment. And I don't know whether that implies that I've been searching for something or just it thinks that's my style.
0: Is that a metaphor for something? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Well, watch those search terms. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell.
1: Oh, um, I think it's possible, but I think Chris may be uh, exaggerating a little bit. But here's a case in point. Uh, in my uh, situation, when I'm editing or doing something in After Effects, um, instead of going into the manual and trying to figure out how to do <clears throat> do a, excuse me do a thing, it's much easier just to to, uh, to search YouTube, and then you got instructions right there online helping you out it's as if somebody's sitting next to you giving you uh instructions and that could happen maybe 20 or 30 times uh in a full day of work um even the rest of the day if i fill it with cat videos on youtube it's just not quite enough to make it to 100.
0: all right uh well we hope that at least some of those viewing hours will be from office hours let's go to our next question
1: Douglas Carmichael asks, Senator Markey has adv- advocated for carmakers to maintain AM radio receivers in cars because of the utility of AM in emergency situations and the resilient radio broadcast infrastructure. What sort of resiliencies would be in the audio RF chain? Good. Mitchell? Um, I would question that, uh, that logic because AM has become increasingly hard. Uh, to separate from the amount of noise that's out there. Back when I used to listen to AM, way back in the 70s, um, there were a lot less uh, fluorescent lights and uh, hard supplies, uh, you know, switching power supplies, and just general noise uh, because it was more more important. I think FM is still uh, more resilient in terms of a uh, format. The other reason why you won't see car manufacturers uh, investing a lot in current AM is that... Uh, At least it's being considered a repack of the AM frequencies that are available to licensed uh, users out there. What that means is the FCC is deciding whether or not um, they want to change the whole technical nature of the AM radio frequencies, not necessarily the uh, the technology, but the frequencies and how they uh, digitize that and pack more channels within a certain amount of space. I think it's going to go that route. So that's a future thing that hasn't been accommodated for in the current technology and is sort of allowing car makers to stop making AM receivers. In fact, there are some cars out there that don't have them.
0: As long as they have headphone jacks. John?
5: I am not a radio technician, but I assume the resiliency factor comes from the fact that there are so many different um, locations from which you can broadcast that are not Dependent on each other from an infrastructure perspective, whereas there's relatively few internet carriers to use the internet as that sort of media. Dave.
9: Yeah, I go with that as well. Uh, the emergency frequencies. Uh, In shortwave, single sideband ham radio are usually what they rely on for emergencies. So if you've got an earthquake zone and all the infrastructure has gone dead, there's a lot of people who have ham operators nearby who can relay. And this is a practice for emergencies that I've seen with even citizen band. Uh, We have a group here in the north where if you have an emergency, there's a whole bunch of citizen band guys who sit on their radios all day relaying stuff back and forth from emergency services to local people and that is uh, a much more resilient system because it's it's in everyone well all the participants homes is not my home Uh, but if I needed to get access to the emergency service I I don't think I'd go to AM radio I'd be looking on shortwave and I'd look for ham operators in my neighborhood who can help us out
0: interesting safety precaution Dave you talk about um Relying on a ham operator in your neighborhood. So maybe for those of us that are packing our go bags or emergency things, what would be a good investment so that we don't have to rely on uh, our local neighborhood ham operator?
9: Well, there's a lot of wind-up radios you can get, you know, for both camping and for emergencies. Um, And wind-up radios usually have all of the shortwave frequencies that the world shares. Okay.
0: Thank you. Courtney? Courtney?
6: Yeah, for emergencies, I have um, a little digital shortwave FM AM radio that's battery powered and uh, can tune in the shortwave radio frequencies. But I think as far as emergency broadcasts, we're moving more towards cellular with because most cellular towers have battery backup on them. And a lot of them have a a microwave backhaul on them. So they're not dependent on uh, any type of networking connection or fiber connection that comes in um, so that they can. By their battery, by the sake of their battery-powered, with some of them have solar recharging on those batteries, um, so that they can stay on air for a lot more. And plus, the cellular network has the ability to alert you, even if you're not monitoring directly those frequencies. You know, you have to with a radio, you have to tune in and find the broadcast and tune to it. With F, you know, as we've all known when we're our cell phones go. Eat, eat, in the middle of a, of a program that they can broadcast a, uh, a interrupt silver alert, amber alert, any of those emergency broadcast uh, trips that trip on all the cell phones and notifies everybody at the same time.
0: Well, since you mentioned cell phones, too, it's a recent advent that cell phones are now getting satellite support. So even if the cell towers are down, that might be a viable option.
1: Go ahead, Mitchell. I'm going to be interested to see what uh, Mark Giuliani says when he answers because he actually owns radio stations and he could give us a little more inside uh, scoop on that. But just for the uh, opinion wise, uh, the emergency action notification system or EBS or whatever you want to call it um, will uh, tell an AM or an FM station when to go into an emergency mode and maybe broadcast a generic problem that's out there or a missing child or uh, an incoming uh, missile from some other country, uh, but the reality is is on the AM side, and I would amend this question to mean FM or broadcast or maybe satellite TV or radio, um, uh, the irony is that AM radio stations are struggling out there, and most of them are automated or satellite-driven, so they're not really local. Uh, they're not covering local issues, uh, and there's nobody sitting in the chair waiting to uh, read a uh, report or a uh, alert message because... It's all in the computer. So somebody has to generate that message physically uh, to uh, to alert people using the AM side. So I really don't see AM as a real viable uh, system for doing that. But I'm sure Mark will do better than I did.
4: Okay, Mark, what do you think? So there's there, a lot of good points have been made. I would say if you start from the transmission side, a lot of FM stations that are doing transmission and part of the emergency broadcast system have generators so they can operate in... In the event of a civil emergency, if you look at the receiver side, it's going to be very difficult in a civil emergency to probably run a TV set off of batteries. Yes, you can go get a separate you know battery pack that's large enough or you may be lucky enough to have a generator running at your home. But in most cases, people are going to turn to a radio because they have a radio on standby, it runs on batteries and can pick up a radio station and they can find out what's happening. Uh, Courtney brought up some interesting questions about using cellular. The issue I think there may be, and Courtney may have a response, is that most cellular towers can only handle so many connections, so I'm not sure how a transmission going over a cellular network is going to be able to you know mass send out a mass signal to everyone, whereas the radio just does that out of
7: you know, the way it's designed. Nigel I think reality will have to set into uh, this conversation. I don't want to get political, but but practically speaking. Um, most homes do not have radios. Most homes have televisions and cell phones. Where there are radios are cars. And the truth is that the same people who want the AM to be prevalent are driving everybody to buy new electric cars, which don't have AM radios in them either, but mostly have phone signals. I I think this... what. This conversation to me is picking a very narrow band, no pun intended, uh, of thinking and not pushing it all the way through. And I think if we want to have a conversation about how do we create emergency uh, and coverage and how we communicate with the broad populace, we should avoid picking one technology that was very popular a century ago and think about how most people live today and redo that? The answer might be the government has to do something to support the cell phone network or something or something or ensure continuity of power to people's homes. I I just think it's such narrow thinking for a very complicated problem. I got to say, Nigel, I
0: I can see that point too. I was um, uh, required to learn manual square roots with the explanation that if you didn't have a calculator around, now come on, Okay. So, you know, that was, that was the explanation for that. And I definitely see the ubiquity in cell phones. And I think, you know, the age of our current panel, um, you know, they're thinking about things that they're familiar with, but thinking about a younger generation, they would say, for emergencies, I've got to, I've got to get what I've got to, uh, you know, find what to do things. So, um, yeah' just my opinion on it um, making the ubiquitous uh, handset more uh, usable in emergency seems like a good idea to me but just my opinion Courtney
6: yeah uh, sidestepping the emergency aspect of the question and going back to you know availability of, of AM radio in cars. Uh, and and I disagree with Mitch. I think, you know, I tune across the AM band in my car these days, and it's almost all talk radio, and it's almost all live. And, a lot, you know, some of it's syndicated, but a lot of it's live local, at least here in L.A. it is. So uh, their news radio is almost all AM these days. So you get local news and stuff over AM radio in a car. And uh, I think maybe the only reason some electric vehicle – manufacturers are leaving it out is because of the interference factor. You've got so much uh, high voltage electric switching that's going on in those electric vehicles that uh, it may be generating too much interference in the AM band. So that may be why they're not putting AM radios in there. I have an AM radio in my hybrid electric plug-in hybrid, and it seems to work fine. Listen to it all the time.
0: Nice. It's not a Tesla, I take it.
6: And whatever happened to, to HD radio and stereo AM? Those were things 20 years ago. Now, do we have stereo AM in our cars or HD radio in our cars? Well, they receive them, but I, you can't tell when you're listening to it these days. I haven't seen a portable HD radio.
0: I saw some head nods, but uh, I am unfamiliar on the topic. Go ahead, Dave.
9: Uh, Just as an anecdote, my son lives in Japan, and he was woken up at 3 a.m. with a warning on his phone, which he did not know. Uh, He thought he had to subscribe to it, but it's automatic in Japan, all the transmissions. Uh, The government uh, notified him that a rocket had been shot over top of Japan by North Korea that morning, and everyone was warned that there may be consequences, be prepared. And he had no idea this was a thing until it actually happened to him. So maybe there's a thing going into place that Senator Markey is rebelling against, and uh, it'll be something that we take for granted, that the cell phone is going to be the device we're warned with.
4: Mark. Uh, So responding to Courtney's uh, HD radio, I've looked into it. We have FM. I have two FM stations. We've looked into HD radio. What's been explained to me, and I'm not necessarily a radio guy, but what's been explained to me is that we will lose our reach because we have to divide part of our frequency up into those other so-called channels, virtual channels that we could have different programming on. So it's depending upon how your business model works and how much reach you want to have for that one
0: station or multiple stations. And JJ, sorry Mark, JJ says in the chat, yep, my local station has two HD stations that I can switch between to the same frequency.
1: And Mitch, you have the final thought. Yeah, just a a little more, because we have time to unravel this a little bit. HD radio is meant to switch between the analog FM and the digital, preferring the digital whenever it can. Uh, That's for HD one. Um, And a lot of times it's able to switch and you never knew what happened. And that might be what Courtney was referring to. The problem with HD is that it takes a lot less power to put a signal out, so you may have a radio station with, let's say it's 10,000 watts. Um, The HD uh, transmission uh, that's co-channeled may only be 125 watts, so the coverage is not exactly the same. It should be, but it's not. So uh, HD versus the regular analog FM signal, um, that's going to be an issue as far as coverage goes.
0: And that was a fun side. Thank you, uh, producers, for giving us the time to to dwell on that a little bit. And thank you, panelists, for your thoughts. Let's
1: go to our next question. From Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Mitch, I told you about the voiceover village on YouTube. Did you have a chance to evaluate it? Mitchell? No. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, the problem with a YouTube link is it requires a little more thought and, and consideration um, outside of, uh, office hours. So it's kind of hard to do that, but I did do a quick search on the internet, to see if I could find their site and I did not have any luck doing that. But while we're on the subject of these kinds of things, uh, voiceover, um, aggregators, uh, there is one that I use called VoiceJungle.com, and I happen to be one of the voices on there. So if you want to hear what I sound like, uh, go to voice Jungle and check it out. I'm sorry about the uh, shameless plug. But um, that's the only one I'm familiar with uh, that I actually use.
0: Okay. Well, you have to get on that, Link Mitchell.
1: Let's go to the next question. Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. What are your most useful physical interfaces on your desk other than Stream Deck? And how do you use it? Guy.
2: Yeah, a lot of us use Synergy. to. Uh, it's a little app that you can use to have uh, multiple computers with on multiple platforms. So I have... Um, an LG quad uh, display here so I've four or no three computers running right now and you can move the mouse across but when you restart like I have my Mac mini M1 when I restart it you hit the login screen and it you can't log in unless John might be able to tell me if there's a trick to this but if you get one of these little puppies which is um a Rosewell USB 3.0 sharing switch box, um, you get this little remote and that little remote sits right, right above my keyboard so I can switch physically all the cables and all the peripherals. Uh, this thing's only like $59, but I use this thing all the time so I can hard switch especially if I'm in a show and I need to take back control. If something crashes, I can immediately hop back physically instead of relying on Synergy. So if you have Synergy, I'd recommend getting one of these $59 Rosewell uh, USB sharing switch boxes, and I will put the link in the chat.
0: Nigel.
7: Well, I guess the obvious answer is my keyboard, uh, which was sort of following on from what uh, Guy just said. But after that, uh, my uh, Mix Pre 3 is connected to a, a Korg Nano Control 2 which gives me a little set of sliders or faders by my left hand, so I can adjust, and the mix Pre 3 is somewhere back. But probably the strangest thing I have is I have a little two-button switch for changing what goes to my headphones from two different systems. So I sort of operate two different systems. I think of my office hour system and my work system, my work system is much simpler. It's just one in-ear system and a press of a button by my left hand. I jump from one audio system to the other, and, and that's probably the most used button outside the control system. Peter?
8: Well, I was going to say, well, obviously, my most frequently used manual interface is, uh, is, in fact, my keyboard followed by my trackball. But just to do a corollary, my least favorite manual interface is actually the buttons on my A10 Mini Pro Extreme. I much prefer the software control. There are just too many buttons, and frankly, I don't know what half of them do and
0: why they do the things they do. Oh, if you could only reprogram them. Mitchell?
1: Well, those are all great answers, and people have a lot of stuff. And at the risk of uh, showing off my same piece of equipment on two shows in a row in two days, <laughs> my favorite device is my... Uh, Studio Technologies mute button, and I like it because my hand just sits right here on the mute button. You can't hear me when I do it. So if somebody says next question and I'm not ready for it, my hand is right there. Um, I don't have to go searching for a uh, uh, you know a mute button or a, a icon on the screen. So my fave is my Studio Tech 205.
0: We like your mute button too, Mitch. <laughs> you know. Um, it would be great to have a super cut for our upcoming Kilo show that had super cuts of frequently answered questions on the show. Just a thought. Yeah, maybe that'll be a voting question there. Courtney.
6: What I like is my, um, my ATEM many, uh, I don't have an extreme pro uh, which has the separate HDMI out because I, I feed that extra HDMI out to a, uh, Small portable screen like this, only it's a 14-inch. It's off to the side. And so I use the six buttons on the outside to switch between different inputs into that screen. So I can see the second screen for my main desktop computer. I can cut to the, um, you know, this is the Melee computer. And uh, so that's on one of the inputs. And I control it through this separate wireless keyboard mouse arrangement. it has this uh, thumb mouse up here, which moves the the mouse around by moving your thumb around on this little sensor here. And uh, so that comes in handy to control the Melee computer. Then I have a, uh, a, a Windows tablet that I have comms on, which is touchscreen, and I have the touch version of Unity running, so I can just tap that to talk, and I have, uh, so I have control over that. And then I have a KVM on my main keyboard, which switches between the Mac Mini and the Dell, and with a, just a hotkey on the KVM. So I have all of that with just a few screens. So I only have three screens in front of me with a lot of things to interface to them as far as keyboards and mice go.
0: Yeah, we saw some of those uh, yesterday for our behind the scenes Ruthless review. So interesting to see what uh, folks have behind their camera. Let's go to our next question.
1: And next question in from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. You may have heard that name before. Here he is again asking. Do you have a roll-around cart in your house, Guy? Guy? Uh,
2: I will by the end of the day, which is kind of funny that you bring that up because uh, we're in the middle of uh, redoing our one-button studio for version four and it's going to get a de- an Ergotron uh, desk. And so I get to run over there and go grab this cart, which is an Ergotron cart that I'm going to put my my uh, telestrator on. So it's this one. I don't know if you can see that down the bottom left but basically it's got a pneumatic lift on it so uh they're really cool and they're mostly used in medical facilities uh they're really stable but uh, i'll put a link in the chat tra- chat to this one we actually have two different ones the uh with the other one that i uh that i'm going to grab can actually hold a pc as well or an uninterruptible power supply so you can actually run something around with uh, uh batteries so pretty cool cart Uh, Again, I'll put a link in the chat to the Ergotron.
0: Next question.
1: From John Snyder in Reno, Nevada, what do you do to prepare the way for new gear, specifically a camera? Go ahead, um,
0: Dave and then Courtney.
9: Well, actually, that's a good question for today because I completely redid my whole setup just uh, about a month ago. And it's slowly coming to the end of the process. But I began by making a diagram of how I wanted to lay it out. And then I was gonna do the wiring diagram based on that. Then made an entire list of all the things that I'm gonna have to deal with uh, when I do this. And it includes, the camera has all these other aspects to it, and then the audio has, and then my network and everything else had to be changed. So. Yeah, I'm a planner. Uh, I do that all the time, and I work it out in my head. So then when I do do it, I'm solving only the immediate problems. I've worked it all out beforehand where everything is going to be. Courtney?
6: Well, uh, off gate plans, gay-arai, or whatever it's called, uh, <laughs> if you speak Gaelic. Uh, I had planned on putting the Insta three hundred and sixty Insta360 link, Seen here uh, on my uh, computer and be able to switch back and forth between the ATEM, the Insta360 Link, and I have a Logitech uh, C900, HD900 uh, on here too. But I plugged all three of them in to the same time and uh, I had a horrible meltdown right before the show two days ago uh where i think it's saturated because this switched into 4k and it's but it's coming in over a usb 2 port and uh i think it saturated the usb ports and it just totally hosed all of my suddenly zoom could not see any usb devices any cameras or any sound equipment on my pc at all until i shut everything down rebooted the computer so Saturation of the USB lines uh, is possible if you put too many cameras on it at one time. And by the way, one interesting thing when I went to shut down, it said uh, it couldn't, Windows said it couldn't shut down because the DJI Osmo drivers were still running. Well, I don't have a DJI Osmo hooked up to it. So that tells me that this little device from Insta360 is using that camera as a DJI Osmo camera and all of its
5: gimbal controls are probably from dji john appreciate the suggestions yeah i'm hoping to upgrade to a black magic pocket 6k um in the near future but then i realized that when i do that my camera which is like super indispensable at work like once that goes down i have to be ready to be up by the next day of work or else i'll be in trouble so i'm trying to make sure i just approach it correctly
7: yeah nigel So here's what happens when I take something out of my setup, I put it in the cupboard that's over there. When the cupboard is full, I take everything out of the cupboard and decide what I haven't used for the longest time. And I dispose of it, give it away, or try and sell it. Invariably, the week after I lose it, I need it. So that's encouraged me just to buy another cupboard. (laughs) Didn't expect
0: that surprise ending at the end. Yeah, Um, I'll do that too. Sometimes I have been doing Saturday shows, so usually my major teardowns happen tomorrow on Sunday to make sure I have enough lead time to get a working system up and running.
1: Let's go to our next question. From Paul Praskowski in in Gainesville, Florida. On the topic of radio, what is FMHD and how is it different from traditional FM? Mitchell? Uh, here in the United States, um, it is an in-band solution. Basically, if you if you saw the I wish I have my telestrator, but I don't have one. Um, if you saw the bandwidth of a of an FM station, they place the um, the HD signal on the side chain on either side of the main signal. So you might have uh, two, possibly three, digital uh, channels piggybacking on the uh, the main channel of the uh, the FM station. Um, In Europe, generally, it's referred to DAB, and it's a whole different uh, beast altogether. But here in the U.S., um, not all stations are required to have it, uh, that I believe. I think Mark would have to jump in on that. But uh, it is an option for stations to decide how many HD channels they're going to place on top of their analog signal. And uh, generally, the first one is always associated with the main channel. Um, And what happens is uh, in your car or on an FM radio that's been... Uh, adjusted for uh, HD, um, it switches at per- with preference going to the digital channel. And that switch going between the analog signal and the HD is very, very tricky because you have to have both of them in sync. Otherwise, you're going to hear a song repeat itself a little bit by a few seconds or maybe as much as a couple of minutes um, if it's bouncing back and forth. So it's the attempt, of, I-, I think, of the uh, the broadcast industry to uh, digitize FM. <laughs> Um, not quite the same way they've done for TV, but in a different way. And it's kind of working. I'd have to let Mark uh, comment to that.
0: All right. And uh, briefly, Courtney. Uh, sorry, you're muted, Courtney.
6: I did click on it. So if, I don't know if it's on the single sideband where they they used to broadcast Um uh, Muzak, remember that in analog days, but now they they broadcast digital channel on that and that's received as HD. It's also is the, what carries that information on your car radio, where it tells you the name of the song playing or the name of the show you're listening to on FM. So it comes in as metadata digitally as well.
1: Yeah, you're referring to SCA used to be mm-hmm. uh, the thing, and you can rent your SCA channel out.
6: Yep.
0: And our final question
1: from Douglas Carmichael, Guy. What is that green light atop the monitors in the one-button studio?
2: Yeah, that is a uh, Reflect Media light ring. So basically, there's a special fabric that you can get that accompanies the Reflect Media system, and that uh, turns the um, that gray screen in. It's basically lots of little glass beads, and it makes that blue or green. So with that light ring, you flip a switch and it'll turn it uh, blue or green. Let me show you the, what he's talking about. So here it is on the BGH1. Um, that's, uh, if you ask me uh, tomorrow or queue me up, uh, give me a little more time, I have one here. I can I can dial it in. I just, I'm locked in right now, but I can, I can show you how it works. It's really cool. Or you can just Google it and find it. It's Reflect Media. I'll put a link in the chat.
0: All right. Well, thank you for that discussion. Thank you, panelists for being here to answer our producers' questions. Thank you producers for uh, really guiding the show with the questions that you desire to answer. And we also want to always give, uh, uh, appreciation to our back crew that this is the reason why our show looks and functions so well. So appreciate that. Um, we will be moving maybe, um, one announcement before we switch over to our education channel. Um, it's our last week of putting together, um, request So th- submitting, content for our Kilo show coming up. After that, we're going to buckle down and start editing something. So there's a little voting channel over there in our future shows. Feel free to weigh in and looking forward to that coming up in just over two weeks. But um, Dave, we're going into the education channel. Uh, What do you have for us today?
9: Well, a lot of Mindshare has been taken up about uh, immersive media by popular media outlets today. And uh, we're going to discuss how these emerging products may alter the way people learn, work, and play. In addition, we'll examine the implications for educators with regard to the workload, uh, special needs students, and infrastructure trade-offs. Welcome to the Education Hour. Today we're going to talk about all the different types of immersive media and their impact on education, training, and ordinary life from Meta's Metaverse product to various other applications of immersive experiences and their role in preparing people for everyday life. I'm gonna start with a very recent Ebony article, November 29th. Morehouse College is making history as the first college or university to offer classes in the Metaverse. That is about the Metaverse, I guess. Um, It's in a partnership with a VR tech company called Victory XR. And uh, a fellow named Professor Orval Hamilton is creating his first full course on the metaverse on plaque history, Um, and that's an interesting class. He says that during class, students will wear virtual reality headsets to experience what it was like on a slave ship, take part in the Haitian Revolution, travel the numerous stops on the Underground Railroad or witness the I Have a Dream speech in virtual 3D space, where they can interact with each other using avatars. In that article, they referenced a paper from the Pew Research Center on the metaverse. In it, they examined the nature of a metaverse and its social and economic implications. The word was coined by sci-fi author Neal Stephenson in 1992 in his novel Snow Crash, And in today's terms, the metaverse is the realm of computer-generated, network-extended reality, or XR. And XR is an acronym for uh, representing uh, AR, augmented, MR, mixed, and VR, virtual. Uh, Their study looked at 624 technology innovators, developers, business and policy leaders, researchers, and activists and they provided open-ended responses to a question seeking their predictions about the trajectory and impact of the metaverse by 2040. Will it or won't it be beneficial in a host of areas described. The pandemic gave XR development a big boost. Experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic have accelerated some demand for investment in new and improved online tools, especially in health, business, and educational settings. A number of experts in that study predict people will not be willing to invest their time and energy in virtual spaces in which they can be further manipulated and surveilled by corporate and or authoritarian interests. I found that very interesting. An article on whiteness of Mastodon in Tech Policy Press cautions how new technologies are failing to provide enough agency for marginalized people and minority groups to form communities unique to their needs. That was published in November 23rd of this year. And they had an interview there with Dr. Jonathan Flowers, who said in the interview, I'm drawing on John Dewey, who says that communities, individuals, organisms emerge by means of their environment, that is, in transaction with their environment, such that both the individual and the environment are changed. Moreover, they incorporate some element of the environment into how they make their personhood and their individuality present within a variety of spaces. So today, I wanted to start with everyone's view of this XR future and then move to the idea of experiential learning, both in classrooms and in everyday life. Experiential learning is often thought of as field trips, but if we were to incorporate XR uh, infrastructure in schools, would that be experiential learning and, and would it be effective? Um, If anyone wants to put their hand up to begin the discussion on this, we can talk about what immersive experiences might be uh, and what experiential learning might be. Want to start it off, Tony?
10: So thank you, Dave. Uh Interesting enough, I had the director of the program at Morehouse on conversation with Tony Mobley this week, and part of our conversation was indeed about the, uh, her her point of view was that uh, a lot of people were getting caught up in the uh, immersive experience on the slave ship, and that it was more than that, it was a broader base Um, Opportunity to experience the metaverse but she emphasized the importance of actually having those experiences of the slave ship and she went on to talk about the importance of uh, the uh, metaverse being a uh, a resource for all people and not just you know um uh majority culture and so it was it was a fascinating conversation. It was um, it was cut short a little bit because of her uh, technical issues that she had uh, and also the fact that she had, was in a major um, she had a major incident over the weekend. Um, but I, I think that technology has always been the great equalizer when it comes to uh, moving a society forward. And this is uh, not different from any other technological advancement that can help a culture develop. And I just think that um, we as individuals and as a, a group should push as much as possible to make sure that the resources are available so that all uh, partners can continue to participate in this uh, endeavor.
9: Thanks, Tony. Let's go to Harshid.
11: Yeah, so I wanted to speak on how Immersion evolves, and uh, last night I was speaking to a uh, uh, to uh, one of our friends uh, that came on when we were first starting up the Education Hour uh, discussion. And Mandy and I spoke about Roblox, where she mentioned that it's so interesting that she went through some kind of concert thing on there, and the interactiveness where you could go kind of in the uh, the hallway, pick up a bunch of merch as you would, and then go into the concert and just that interactivity she felt was really done well and then if we look at uh, things such as Google I O doing it virtually and how developers are also in, encouraged to join in into the let's say sandboxes they have and you could get yourself a a nice one-on-one conversation with a developer by doing that but to me it still feels a little disconnected and then if you look at apple apple as alex would always say uses video as their format of explaining things but where does the interactivity happen because in immersion there is a form of interactivity that one could it be, let's say, with Facebook, with Metaverse. It's interactivity that we're seeking more so than if it's the format. Uh, the format could come from a video source. It could come from an audio source. Uh, there, There's a game uh, that's called uh, Audio Game Hub on Android. And it's a group from New Zealand that uh, made it. And it's just like simple games like playing archery and you're listening to the buzzing sound and in the real world we've seen children I've seen him on uh, the tonight show with Jimmy Fallon and there was a simple Bluetooth device where the boy made a device where when he wants to do archery physically he was able to listen in on the beacon of the beep and release exactly when the beacon and the, the two points meet and so when we look at immersion, I think physical is still going to be the conqueror of all. We need to still teach kids or adults like of all ages that we do need to interact with each other. We don't have to go, you know, completely bonkers with it, but we do need some physical interactivity. And then when it comes to the metaverse, sure we could you know, drive thing, uh, a interactivity or a process, but we also have to be careful that we don't increase the frequency of, the, the, you know, a young mind, where when they don't get that frequency met, they don't know what to do with themselves. So it's kind of a balanced game. We need to make sure that if it's a vert, you know, if you're looking at through goggles, is it going to be bad on your eyes for a long term? If you put earbuds in ears for, you know, maybe 12 hours, 18 hours a day, is it really good for your ears? So we have to really also look at the human uh, nature of the physical and see where can we go with this.
9: Thanks for that, those are interesting points because the physical interaction with the technology is a factor in the experience. And if it becomes difficult or actually easier, if we all had Elon's Brain implants then you wouldn't even be fatigued by your interactions and you would switch it in and out Just by thinking about it instead of putting a headset on Um, Also, we change our behaviors according to what we what technologies we drop into Uh, television is a lean back kind of let it spill over you experience and Computers have been a reach forward and start typing kind of experience. So we do adjust our behaviors and I'm kind of curious as to when when you're doing it immersively, what kind of behaviors might emerge both in society and individually. Um, We'll go to John Snyder next.
5: Thanks. I think it's really important to recognize that education is the means, it's not the end. The end is educated individuals, and my concern with immersive education is a lot of times we look at it, it's very affecting emotionally, which can help the learning process, but can also become a distraction. And it's really important to recognize that what we're trying to do is educate humans and have humans retain information. And if our technologies are distracting from that, we should avoid them, and if they support it, we should include them.
9: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It occurred to me when reading about the um, the project, uh, the Black History Project, that some of what they would experience might actually be traumatizing. So I'm sure the professor has looked into supporting students uh, who may have been affected emotionally by what they experienced in in that immersive classroom. Rick,
3: so I mean, for me, it depends on. Um, the type of experience, you know, that makes it immersive. Um, you know, like for me, virtual reality is kind of an empathy tool. It allows you to put someone in somebody else's shoes. It allows you to put someone in a particular time and space. Um, you can take them back in time. You can put them in, in the future. Um, it really allows a person to immerse themselves in the environment and, and, um, you know, it it creates empathy. It allows you to experience that. So people can, you know, experience what it's like to be in the middle of a combat zone, or they can, you know, be what it's like and experience some ancient architecture and what it looked like, you know, when it existed, or or to see a building before it even exists. Um, other things like you know, augmented reality, it can enhance your existing environment. Um, you know, kind of speaking about architecture, you could go to a location and pull up your phone and point it at an object and see what that building was like in its original day or, um, what it might be like when the new expansions are done. Or, um, maybe you could over like point it at your car's engine and see how the engine works, see, uh, the uh, electrical flow, see where the fuel lines are. Um, you know, be able to see through objects and overlay information. Um, and that's, you know, mixed realities getting to that point too, where you're combining the virtual and the augmented and giving yourself a little bit of uh, a mix of both. Um, they all have some amazing tools, but really it, it's, a, it's augmenting and supplementing and you know, allowing people to, to put themselves in situations that they just can't experience without um, a, a technologies like immersive medias.
9: Yeah, I suppose the caution there is that, you know, when computers, the desktop computer, first started to be promoted, they said you'd balance your checkbook on it. Um, I don't think I've written a check in three years, but uh, we're kind of moving away from sitting at desks and lecturing, and we're starting to use. Other methods of of training and education. And maybe immersive, like you're saying, is a way of having exploration and information presented to you in its context rather than just abstractly. We'll go to Chris for the next
12: remark. Yes, I wanted to talk a little bit about the use of immersive technologies uh, to prepare a person to act in the real world, not in a virtual world. And the two examples that come to my mind are flight simulators for training pilots and cabin crew in how to operate uh, an aircraft, a commercial aircraft, especially under um, crisis conditions, how to respond to emergencies and uh, keep the plane flying level or And then the other example that I've experienced personally is uh, training for escaping from um, a submerged submarine on the bottom. So with the um, flight simulator, as I understand it, um, it's a hybrid system. There's a a lot of physical, mechanical simulation of the the deck tilts and and uh, alarm sound and so forth you're it feels like you're you are physically you are physically in a space that's a mock-up a duplicate of the uh, cabin of the type of aircraft that you're training on and also the the view out the front window so to speak is uh virtual it's a it's a movie essentially, a computer generated image that responds as, as the, as the terrain would respond if you were actually uh, in flight. And I think it's a very powerful and a less dangerous way to train pilots and crew in responding to emergencies, because if the first two times they, they fail, um, nobody dies. It's, but they know, of course, that they don't have 250 passengers behind them in the cabin, and they know that they're not going to die no matter how uh, clumsily they respond. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a, a simulation in a way that has lower stakes than trying to do this training training. Um, in actual aircraft above the ground Um, but also it it's missing some of the psychological uh, pressures that could influence your performance in the actual situation Uh, if you're actually landing or taking off in an aircraft then all of those pressures or possibilities are actually present not just uh, imaginary imaginary um so what we what we don't want to do is get pilots really good at operating the simulator the flight simulator but not not being able to fully transfer whatever they got good at at the video game version so to speak to actual practice um that's that's a kind of a risk and that gap potential gap has uh, very serious consequences.
9: Let me just jump in and before you finish, because I've got direct experience here. Um, flight simulations are designed to put you under pressure and to give you um, an ability to practice response time, decision time, and to work with those pressures. And they actually do uh, put people through the sweat. Uh, in the military, or at least in the Air Force that I worked with, uh, they call that a helmet fire where you're just panicking and you're not really making good decisions. And they try and create situations that are so realistic that you're actually not thinking that it's a simulation anymore. You're actually immersing yourself in it. Uh, I can testify that the uh, the trainers that they use for commercial jets also do this kind of training because there's operators in the background monitoring your performance and giving you little um, nudges to make a mistake. And then you learn more and you feel that psychological pressure that you're saying might be missing. So I'm just cautioning you that they actually do account for that in the training. But you had another side of the
12: uh, discussion. right? Well, d- the other side of it is uh, during my uh, submarine officer training, one of the uh, the main training experiences that everyone had to pass wasn't wasn't a classroom experience. It wasn't um, turning the right valves at the right time in a simulator, roughly similar to an aircraft simulator, but it was actually um, entering at the bottom of a 100-foot tower filled with water and successfully getting to the top uh, without um, getting the bends without having your lungs expand faster than your ascent. Uh, And, of course, that was real. I mean, we really were 100 feet below the surface. That's fully immersive in the real sense, (laughs) yes. Literally immersive. And uh, I don't imagine that there's an alternative, uh, a virtual simulation that would provide the... um, a demonstration that you could actually do that. There were safety divers every 20 feet, and they they were capable of stopping you if you were holding your breath and not ex- getting rid of the uh, expanding air in your lungs before it became dangerous. Um, and I just, I don't see an alternative... A virtual alternative for that kind of a, a high-stakes uh, training, and it did eliminate some people who were great at uh, doing all the uh, the usual maneuvers and understanding how how all the su- submarine systems operated, but they they were not able to be successful in uh, overcoming the the fear of. Mm-hmm. Of being, uh, maybe not succeeding at uh, preventing their lungs from bursting. Sure. So, those are my two thoughts about, or two examples of the limits and the possibilities of this kind of uh, virtual training experience. And we'll finish with Mark here. So, I just wanted to talk a
4: little bit about uh, immersive media through the eyes of an architect. Uh, who started in the, the mid-'80s and um, saw, came into an industry that was primarily still analog. You had a set of drawings that a contractor would bid on and a set of specifications, were, which were the written word. And at that point in time, which is still done today, you would sit down with a client, find out what their needs were. You'd develop a program. And then you would show them plans, sections, and elevations, and maybe a rendering, which cost a lot of money to do and had to do by hand. And then as the building was built, you'd see some surprise looks in many clients because what you had drawn on plans wasn't necessarily understood by the client. And that's changed over the years because now we can do renderings and we can show them walkthroughs of what the building will look like. And that has helped immensely our services because the client sees the process all the way through. And to add to that, uh, in the construction, a lot of projects now are done as design-build projects rather than the older way of design-build bid-build projects, and because it's a design-build, you're working with the contractors as you're designing the facility. So we will sit there and do clash detection models in where we see all the mechanical systems and where there are clashes with structural systems, and we can actually make changes to the design before somebody puts a shovel in the ground, and that drastically reduces the cost and change orders and things as we go through the construction of a building. So there's been a vast change in our industry, uh, over the years, because of this this type of media.
9: Thanks for that, uh, John Snyder. You ha- you had a question. Um, let's give you a chance to ask that question.
5: Yeah, my question is: At what point does media become immersive?
9: Well, the definition, of course, is that it's a it's an experience that is unique and and tech- delivered technologically. So. Uh, Not so much the uh, training for submariners, uh, that you have a real immersive experience, but uh, many times people are put in simulations of a situation. Uh, In my experience, I had to develop a program for uh, school principals because they could not put a trainee in the chair and run a school because they knew everybody would be on their best behavior and nothing would go wrong, Uh, you weren't gonna learn how to handle all the mistakes. And so they created a somewhat immersive experience where you were playing a principal for a day and had to delegate, respond to uh, teacher complaints or deal with professional issues as well as parents and all the rest through a two and a half hour intense session. And I can tell you some of the students actually, you know, they were sweating Bullets through that that two and a half hours because it was a very high pressure situation. Um, I'm going to go to Rick and uh, Mark. Did you have something to say about that? Well, I was just going to say it becomes immersive when you can, in our industry,
4: take the client and put them in a virtual world and let them walk through a building, see the lobby, get a sense of scale and color, and just the flow of a space. They can, you know, if it's a residential house, they can see where the bathroom's going to be, where the laundry room's going to be, and they can walk through it and actually start to reach for things and get a sense of space that's not there just by looking at two dimensional drawings.
9: Yeah, that's a visualization method to give you the view or the vision of what the designer is doing. Uh, Rick?
3: I, I feel there's different levels of immersion when it comes to some of these technologies. I mean, uh, you know, there's, just some very minimal level of, of of immersion would be something like uh um like an augmented reality. Let's say we're looking at like a, a map overlay of something that's showing directional information uh you know over top of uh like a Google map or your real world environment, like with the Google Lens where you can overlay different things like that. You know, that's kind of like the the lowest level of immersion in my sense. And then you you kind of work your way up the more you pull yourself into an environment, whether it's Through virtual reality or even like, you know, uh, augmented spaces, let's say like projecting mapped in spaces where you walk into an environment and it becomes a completely new environment just through projections or LEDs or, you know, sight sounds, all that kind of thing. You can really transport someone to another world or in a VR headset where, you know, everything is completely virtual. Um, we start mixing in things like senses of smell, heat, uh, wind. Um, you know, those are getting to the point where you're truly immersive. Um, something like uh uh the jump exhibit. I don't know if anybody's seen that, but there's like a skydiving or a, a wingsuit simulator where they did some ultra high-res um um photogrammetry scans of, of canyons and mountains, and and they have this simulator where you wear a wingsuit with the VR goggles in your helmet. And you literally jump off a platform suspended, and you know you're when you move it, it moves your body through the uh, virtual environment. So there's different levels of it, you know, and um, um, yeah, I think it depends on just how many senses you're you're experimenting with. That you know depends on that level of immersion.
9: All right, and John Snyder.
5: Rick, I'm I'm curious, the different levels of immersion, does that require um equally higher levels of development? So is augmented reality easier to develop for than like full virtual reality or anything like that?
3: Well, you know, it it kind of depends on I guess the delivery method in in a lot of ways too. A lot of people have, I mean, almost everybody's got a phone in their pocket, which would allow them to do like augmented reality type applications. Um uh, virtual reality headsets, they're becoming more common, but there's still not that many people that have them. And there's even less that will wear them for hours on end and actually immerse themselves in these. Um, but each have different levels of development, absolutely. Uh, Apple has all kinds of great augmented reality tools that allow you to build augmented um, applications and, and functionality, you know, sometimes right on your phone. You can. Build little AR apps and and you know overlay things in your environment without even leaving an iOS device. Whereas, you know, some of the higher-end things, you're talking like, you know, real-time computing with um ray tracing and um things like you know, using like a um unreals like nanite technology to do really high polygon counts um and have it play back really smoothly to give you ultra-realistic um immersion. So yeah, there's quite a range of um development uh levels of uh, difficulty. Um and it really you can get into it with some really simple easy to use apps or you can dive deep and and yeah, really yeah.
9: <laughs> okay. Uh Tony.
10: Yeah, I I think that we've we have sort of Uh, we've been hit with it and not even recognize it from the standpoint of uh, Pokemon and uh, IKEA. IKEA was doing this, this product placement thing with augmented reality for quite a long time before the big box stores even thought about it in terms of being able to actually take your furniture and place it and see where, if you like it in this location or you move it to another location and And so it's been a part of us, and it's been steadily growing, and now more and more retailers are utilizing it. But uh, I know most of us remember the craze with Pokemon, uh, how everybody was in the Pokemon craze, and and that's augmented reality. And so uh, it's been with us for a while, and it continues to build.
9: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Even before the pandemic, people were running around parks chasing uh, invisible things. Chris
12: Clark. I think John's question is a philosophical question in a way. Um, And I think the answer is that um, it depends on the degree of uh, similarity or convincingness of the uh, media experience and it's mapping onto the real world version of that experience. So, uh, if I'm engaged in some kind of a, an immersive media experience, and I'm, I'm still aware that this is fantasy. This is there's not a, a really good match between what it would have been like to be sailing a sailboat or, Participating in a virtual version of that, then it's it's not uh, fully immersive. But if I'm act, but at the other extreme, if I'm convinced by the experience that it's just like what it would have been like um, to actually be on the water in a small boat, maneuvering it and responding to changes in the wind and waves, then that's that's become immersive. So it's 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 more of a sliding scale of uh match of the uh experience between the uh match between the uh, virtual version of it and the w- real world version of it.
9: Mhm. We'll finish with Tony on this question.
10: Yeah, I just wanted to add back that even before the pandemic we were starting to begin to, in science classes, do dissecting of the frogs and examination of the human heart and the cha- different chambers and all that kind of uh, uh, information, uh, even prior to the pandemic. So it's it's been with us.
9: Thank you for that. I'm going to indulge you guys just once here with a little story about what happened to me recently with an in. in Immersive experience. Um, I recently was in Tokyo, and this—it's um, a converted warehouse uh, out on the where the shipping area is. So it's a little bit hard to get to. It's called Team Lab Planets, and and it's—it's it's a giant immersive experience. There were uh, hundreds of people lined up to go into this thing. They go in fifty people at a time. You take your shoes and socks off and you roll up your pant legs. You're uh, given a locker room where you can put your stuff and you're allowed to bring your phone in, take a picture of what's going on. And then you have this immersive experience. The experience included uh, ankle and and thigh deep water. Uh, It included um, projections uh, and um, live flowers that moved. And it's almost impossible to describe a, uh, a garden of chrome pods that, if you move them, they make music. But as you go through this thing, uh, what would you call it, pavilion by pavilion, uh, you have an experience that you'll never forget. Uh, one of the rooms is entirely soft, it's actually impossible to walk. So you, you, step into this thing and then tumble because the floor is soft, the walls are soft, and everything won't allow you to stand up. So you have to learn to crawl again. And everyone has to crawl through this room to get to the next pavilion. If you're not able to, there are escape routes. Uh, Just the experience of having to resort to crawling like a baby uh, was an immersive experience and quite enlightening in terms of our connection to ourselves. And the experience of each of the pavilions was another factor of who you are as a human. And the water pool was uh, a milky white water about a foot, maybe a foot and a half deep, and children were held so they wouldn't get all wet. And people would stand in this thing, and at first it's just a lot of colors projected onto the white water, but eventually you start seeing them transform into swimming creatures and fish and eels and stuff. And you look down at this and you look around and if you start moving, the fish move away from you. And if you stand still, they'll swim around you and they'll come and explore you, but they never actually go through you. And the AI that's in the projections knows who's in the room. So there's 50 people in a giant pool and the AI knows to project around these people. And the experience was almost uh, embryonic uh, or even primitive that a, a civilization that was just discovering that you could fish would discover that there are these creatures that have a knowledge that operate in the water. Uh, by the time you came out of this thing, you felt more connected to the earth than you did going in. Uh, you paid, you know, $40 for the privilege of this experience. But the number of pavilions that were in there to give you this experience were well thought out, AI driven. You you were weightless in some of them. Uh, you felt dizzy and other ones but you were given experiences that you're that were more art but art with a message and i think it was a groundbreaking concept that might actually be adopted wider Uh, not so much as a disneyland kind of experience where you you know you're frightened or you're thrown around by the devices they built but you're actually exploring how you feel about things while you're experiencing it uh, I just tell that story because we, we talked about the the diver thing where you have to learn to not uh, surface too quickly, and there are reasons we do physical training, uh, phys ed, and team sports, and all that has to be trained with other real people. You can play soccer in a virtual world, but it's never going to have that, you know, hitting each other and falling down kind of thing. Um, I'm going to go to the next question then, John.
5: Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania asks, what new tools in media provide a pathway to provide more immersive media than were available 10 years ago? What about five years or newer?
9: Let's start with Mark.
12: Mark, Julian, oh, you're muted, Mark.
4: Sorry, hit it twice, I guess. Anyway, so sticking in the architecture and engineering world, Many years ago, we draw two parallel lines, and they would represent a wall. That wall would be keyed to maybe a partition table that would tell the contractor what kind of wall it is, and then you'd go to another page and have a detail. Uh, Building information modeling came in about 10 or 15 years ago, and it changed in the sense that it was a database. So you would grab an assembly of what wall type you wanted, and now there was a database. So when you were completed with the design, the cost estimators could go through because they had a list of all the materials that were making up of that building. More recently, what's really changed the industry is the gaming world because the gaming engines have tied together with the graphics cards. And what would take you know, minutes from a simple rendering to hours or days for a complex walkthrough to render now happen instantaneously. So the designers can actually see as they design a building how it's changing in real time and what what shadows may occur on an elevation by utilizing certain devices. Uh, you know. And so you get a much different representation of foreground and background. Clients can be walked through in real time as you make these changes. So it's really incredible what's happened to our industry.
9: In my field, uh, visualization previsualization has emerged in the last five or 15 years. Um, it's where special effects people can actually see on a monitor what their effect is going to look like. And the performers in that scene or in that scenario can actually act against real images instead of having to imagine what's going on. Uh, Ricky, you're next.
3: Well, I- I've got several things I wanted to kind of discuss, but, um, touching on what mark had mentioned about the real-time technologies i think that's probably one of the biggest um developments that i think are really going to change a lot of things and it affects so many industries from architectural to gaming to um video productions and you know um,
9: shipping and
3: yes so many things. logistics
9: and that yeah
3: yeah just to be able to do this in real time is just amazing um, but some of the other technologies that kind of work with this um, i think that are pretty big are things like um, types of 3d capture like volumetric capture where you're able to capture a video scene and and then be able to put yourself in any position um in that scene for, for like example um intel's free view or um um 3d I can't, it's changed a few names now but they use that for uh, some of the nfl games where they do the matrix style playbacks where um, you can put yourself into the position of the player. They actually have a be the player type view where once they capture the scene, you can actually put yourself in any of the positions of any player or any space on that field. Um, so, that you know, volumetric capture is kind of like taking photogrammetry and putting it, applying it to video. And now you're looking at things like uh, NERFs or uh, neural radiance fields, which are allowing you to capture things that were difficult with volumetric so volumetric it's really hard to capture it's like a math-based capture so it's hard to capture things like glass or reflective materials things like that where nerfs uh, it's a neural radiance field and it's actually capturing how the light is reflected in a scene which is allowing people to capture glass and metal and you know other shiny objects another big um development and it's kind of been around for a while, but it's really come a long way is um, virtual humans or digital twins allowing you to be able to accurately capture a person and recreate them in a 3D environment and animate them um, this you know the thing about a digital human is they don't age. they don't get sick, they don't get pregnant, they don't get acne, they don't gain weight, they don't lose weight, you know they don't show up sick. There, you know, you unless have a you want them to Welcome Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Unless you create that narrative. Yeah. Um, on that sense, there's some like body tracking and facial tracking. Like, you know, before we had to have some really expensive gear to do this. Now we're getting to the point where you can do facial tracking with an iPhone. Uh, like, think, like, suits like Rococo are coming down. And even Sony just came out with Mocapi, which is like a really, uh, it's like a $360 mocap style. Um, uh, you know, piece of technology that allows you to be able to do this stuff on a really small budget. It's not as accurate, but you know it's still coming a long way. Um, virtual production, I think, is another really big one. that's where we're taking these real time game like engines and driving virtual environments in real time like so they have these sets that are comprised of giant led walls that are used to put real-time actors and environments into these virtual sets and then track them with cameras, allowing them to change the perspectives. And and you use the LED panels to actually light the subject. So you get real-world reflections off of glasses and glass and chrome and things like that. And this allows people to, you know, you can change set locations within minutes or hours, you know, depending on what kind of a set you have um and i think that's really changing everything and then on that sense ai artificial intelligence to be able to feed a text prompt or a, you know a couple of images and to be able to have an ai crank out um incredible imagery um and some people are using like uh, like stable diffusion to create real world a real time virtual reality environment so you can actually um create a virtual environment from scratch uh, just your imagination using AI and the the limits are, you know, there's, there's no limitations in my opinion. It's just like you dream it, you can experience it.
9: Great point. John?
5: Yeah, in the past 10 years in the corporate training world, the people were really excited about VR and AR, but it turned out to be incredibly expensive to develop and deploy and scale. And so really it's only used in high stakes scenarios like uh, flight simulations or Places where you put people's lives in safety instead of a place of danger. What's really come up in the corporate training world is additional tools to create simulations that can help the processes in the brain that need those judgments and need those scenarios to come out. Uh, What we're seeing right now and coming soon is that use of AI to auto-generate some of those sorts of conversations. And so for the call centers, um, what I'm starting to see are tools where it will listen to a whole bunch of calls and then have an artificial human call into the trainee and analyze what the person's doing on their computer uh, to make sure that they're following the right steps and have it not just be a a rote uh, repetition.
9: Mm. Okay, we'll move through some questions. Next one.
5: Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. What price point will be needed to make immersive content mainstream in education? Would it be the Meta Quest 2, 329 to 429 USD, or would something less expensive be needed?
9: I guess my first reaction before uh, we get back to you, John, is that the infrastructure that's behind the Quest 2 is probably the significant cost. So John, you want to add to that?
5: 100% right. It's the it's not just the cost of the equipment and deploying it, it's maintenance, repair, um, making sure things stay updated, so there's whole recurring costs for that. There's development time costs, which is the most expensive thing, is building the training materials in the first place.
9: Next question.
5: Josh Kaufman in Pinsil- Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania asks, What are the social repercussions of media becoming even more immersive than it already is? What has the recent past taught us now that several lifetimes of eye-seeking content are ever-present in our pockets?
12: Go ahead, Chris. Well, I made a little list of things that I think are uh, possible social consequences. Uh, one is the possibility of social isolation. People who choose to to live in a virtual immersive world uh, As an alternative to um getting out of the office and into the into society Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of this was uh, alluded to during the pandemic with regard to uh, going actually going to school versus participating in school at a distance through zoom or other distance technology um and relatedly, uh, I think it's, it's it will be harder to uh, refine one's theory of mind. That is, to understand that other people have a, a different view of the world than I do. Um, if, if I'm not practicing with actual other people who actually do have a different uh, theory of mind or view of the world than I do, then mm-hmm. I'm... Mm-hmm. I'm imagining that uh, that yeah. uh, capacity to read other people, to read situations, to to, uh, to connect, respond. yeah, it would um, be a cost. Um, I've read about, but don't fully understand deep fakes and uh, the possibility of identity theft or uh, through technology uh, posing as someone whom you're not and, and using that for nefarious purposes. Um, as well as misrepresentation of yourself, you know, if I were to go on a dating app, uh, I could uh, misrepresent myself as uh, taller than I am today, or uh, with, with less gray hair and, and more of the brown hair that I grew up with uh, mm-hmm. and so forth with whiter teeth without all the inconvenience of teeth whitening. Um, And finally, I think there's a looming threat to artists. I've seen various advertisements or reports of uh, AI producing works of art. And and some of them are kind of clunky and obviously not as uh, artistically made as others, but some of them are convincingly competitors for for those who produce art in the traditional ways. Then that could apply to music as well, um, mm-hmm. composed and performed by AI rather than by um, human musicians and composers. So that's my short list. Oh, thanks of thanks for that. And things to think to, about to even add to your list: the concerns about surveillance
9: uh, when right. you're in the virtual world that isn't cameras that's watching you. It's the entire AI that's watching you. Rick, we'll bring it home with you.
3: So, I mean, you know, I want to touch back on the um, isolation. I I think that is a real issue, uh, especially with virtual reality. And it's kind of interesting because um, you know, that makes it a challenge for um, because I do like group presentations in VR. It's like when one person puts a headset on You know, sometimes you can put like what they're seeing on a screen, but no one else is really in that immersion with you. So there's a bit of isolation between you, spectators around you, and that kind of thing that really isolates you. But, but on the same, but kind of flipping that around though, one of the interesting things with VR and mixed reality is like it allows you to be collaborative with people on the other side of the planet. So you could actually go into, Uh, you know, a virtual environment together and collaborate with someone, you know, miles from you. And still, somehow, even though you're isolating yourself physically in that space, you're, you know, you're connecting with people uh, that you could not have in other ways before.
9: Mm -hmm. No, that's true. There are people, engineers, who collaborate with a screen beside them that's connected to, say, Indonesia. And they have a partner there they're working with, and they they just leave the live feed up all day and say, hey, George, are you there? Well, I'm dealing with this problem. And then they explain it and, and collaborate in real time. And in the virtual world, if it's not a helmet, headset kind of virtual world, but it's just inside your glasses, then people can collaborate even more easily. Um, one more with Mark?
4: Uh, just to add on to what was just said, uh, we spend many phone calls during a day or Teams meetings or Zoom meetings or what have you on the phone with engineers all over the country and world for that matter, uh, just discussing the designs. We're not not putting on a set of goggles to make it that virtual, but we're looking at screens and sharing screens and walking through those models to talk about whatever might need to be talked about for that day.
9: I've uh, done presentations with teachers at uh, teachers' conventions regarding the impact of multimedia and all the rest, and I usually finish by saying if the real world is still more interesting than the virtual or the distracting world, then kids will find the balance. Uh, We have a pretty strange differential now. It's much more interesting with VR right now, but as time goes on, a, a gamer actually finds there's a, because it's constructed, there's not an infinite limit. Now, if it's not constructed and it's AI responding to you, then it could entice you to stay there. So, yeah, that's a social issue as well. Uh, Next question.
5: Eric Billings in Washington, D.C. asks, For university and professional-level training scenarios, the panel has given multiple good examples of immersive media usage. But what about younger students? Should there be a minimum age or experience level before immersion media training or the sooner the better?
3: We'll start with Rick. So it depends on what type of immersive media you're talking about. You know, with, with kids, um, my kids love augmented reality. You know, they use their iPads to uh, play augmented games where they can interact with their surroundings. Um, uh, my, my daughter uses these coding blocks where you can actually lay these blocks in front of the iPad and it'll see the coding blocks and you can solve puzzles in your game and like navigate through the game by using these little coding bits and pieces. Um, But, you know, things like virtual reality, you know, you're looking at things that might cause issues like um, development of their eyes and things like that, where you might not want a younger kid who's still developing that physically to not um, be immersed for too long it's something you want to be aware of that you're not um, that they're still developing and those could have some physical effects on them. So, you know, depending on the type of immersive media, I would I would probably more favor things like augmented reality versus a virtual reality for a younger student or at least limiting their exposure to it.
12: Okay, and Chris, I think kids are way ahead of us in the sense that their imaginations constitute a a virtual reality that um, they live in. And uh, I think gradually, uh, as adults, we've we've um, let that imagination atrophy. We're not as charmed by uh, imaginary scenarios or uh, it takes it takes more effort to uh, suspend disbelief when we attend a, a Broadway show. Uh, Or it takes a lot more infrastructure to make it uh, to signal to us that it's okay to suspend disbelief uh, because of this work of art that we're witnessing and participating in. So um, my my prediction is we'll learn a lot more about the limits and possibilities of virtual immersive experiences, immersive media from children participating in, in immersive media, things that we adults don't imagine or pay attention to or experience um, when we participate in the same or similar um, immersive media experiences. Now, I, I accept uh, the caution that there could be uh, risks to uh, children, Uh, and I think those need to be taken seriously, and I think we shouldn't um, be overly protective because we have a lot to learn and children have a lot to learn by trying these things out in ways that um, inform us about where the guardrails ought to be and where the possibilities are that perhaps go beyond what elders like ourselves uh, predict or intend.
9: Mm -hmm. Okay, well, uh, a big thank you goes out to all the people who submitted questions today and every day. Uh, You're the community who make these discussions possible. As well, I would like to acknowledge all the people who volunteer every single day to operate the integrated systems of office hours and after hours and recognize their dedication for nearly 1,000 days, and counting. We thank you, along with today's panelists, who provided valuable insight in today's subject. Thank you. Join us again next week when we'll be hosting John Corippo, who will speak to us about student-led lesson frames from two books called the Edu Protocol Field Guides. So we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.
8: Thank
4: you.
9: Good show.
5: Yeah, that thanks, Dave. Very thanks, nice. Mark. Dave and Mark look like twins. I learned a lot that, about awesome? architecture <laughs> today.
9: <laughs> we'll do that. It, they were talking about what Mark was looking like, Chris Prine or something? Was that? <gasps> this morning? Yeah. As, no, it was uh, my, Nigel. Nigel. Nigel looks like Chris Prine, and maybe Mark and I should be put in that side by side and (laughs) and see if we were brothers of another mother. But anyway, (laughs) thanks for being here, guys. Look forward to seeing you next week. Likewise. Thanks. Thanks. Take care, everybody.
12: Bye-bye.